0: Would you believe that the shocking news from the murder trial of a national civil rights icon did not make the top story? What huge event on this day was changing headlines across the nation? Find out on this episode of Top Fold. Welcome to Top Fold, a podcast about all the news that would have been. I'm your host, Luke Hefley. Here at Top Fold, we explore monumental events that didn't make the top story only because... That spot was already taken. As far as murder trials are concerned, this was a tough one. The entire state, and the entire South for that matter, were anxiously waiting for the verdict from Jackson, Mississippi. Emotions were raw, and the wounds of racism were on full display in the Hines County courtroom. Byron De Beckwith, a KKK member, was on trial for the murder of NAACP leader and civil rights icon Medgar Evers. In a packed courthouse, the jury deliberated not only Beckwith's fate, but Mississippi's and possibly the nation's. It was a troubling time. The backstory? Almost eight months earlier, Medgar Evers was gunned down in cold blood just after midnight outside his home after returning from a civil rights gathering. He made it into his house, where he collapsed in front of his wife and children. A .30-06 rifle with Beckwith's fingerprints was found nearby. This was senseless. It was murder, and it was because Evers was black. He gave his life for the cause. Because jurors were selected from voter rolls and very few black citizens in the state were registered to vote, Beckwith's jury was all white. The Klan was prominent in the state, and both the prosecution and the black community worried if justice could be served. On the stand, Beckwith declared himself a martyr and said he didn't do it, but observers found his testimony disingenuous and condescending. The lengthy trial caused tensions to rise, and after 11 hours of deliberation and the 20th ballot, the jury was hopelessly deadlocked. Seven voted for acquittal, five for conviction, leaving the judge no choice but to declare a mistrial. Bam! The gavel fell, and the family of the civil rights icon and the black citizens of Mississippi found justice denied on this day. Law enforcement across the nation feared riots might erupt when newscasts and headlines spread the news of this injustice. One would think the mistrial of a man who bragged about the murder would cause shockwaves across the state, the South, and the nation. It should have, but it didn't. The press at the time was all too willing to bury the news story, but how could they? How could they not show such a miscarriage of justice? Instead, most people were talking about an event that was happening in New York City that was making headlines around the world. On that same day at 1.20 p.m. Eastern Time, February 7, 1964, less than one hour after the shocking mistrial was declared from the Mississippi courtroom, the United States was officially invaded. Not by a foreign adversary. But if you ask the parents of the teenagers at the time, they might disagree. Pan Am Flight 101 from London, England, touched down at JFK, and John, Paul, George, and Ringo introduced themselves to America as the Beatles. Almost 4,000 fans, mostly screaming teenage girls, were at the airport hoping to see the Beatles. The buildup had been weeks in the making, and because the Kennedy assassination had occurred just 11 weeks earlier, America was looking for something to feel good about. Four lovable mop tops, Proved to be just what the country, at least the youth, needed. America would never be the same. Take the press conference at the airport. Spectators, fans, and the press could see that the Beatles were truly enjoying the spotlight. With over 200 reporters crammed into Pan Am's smoke-filled lounge, the press fired off questions in rapid order. For almost an hour, the Beatles bantered back and forth. With questions from the press like, Will you play for us? And... Do you ever get haircuts? They were charming, with quick-witted answers, like, We need money first. And, I had a haircut yesterday. One reporter asked, How do you find America? Ringo zinged. Take a left at Greenland. They were irresistible. Next, it was off to the Plaza Hotel in downtown Manhattan. The scene there proved as chaotic as the airport, with hundreds of fans being held back by over 50 policemen, at least 20 of them on horseback. The plaza management was shocked to learn the reservations that had been made for English businessmen were actually for the Beatles. The group watched news reports about themselves on TV and conducted phone interviews with reporters and local radio DJs. The next day, February 8th, George had strep throat and stayed in bed while John, Paul, and Ringo entertained reporters. Nicknaming themselves the Threetles, they took pictures in the park and rehearsed for later shows. With hundreds of people following them everywhere, they toured New York City, visiting all the major landmarks. Sunday, February 9th, would be historic. Thousands of teenage fans waited up and down Broadway trying to get a glimpse of the Fab Four while they traveled to the Ed Sullivan Show. There were well over 50,000 requests for tickets to the evening show, but only 728 seats were available. A record 73 million people Almost 40% of the entire U.S. population watched the live event on their televisions that evening. The Beatles sang five songs in two separate segments. Sullivan knew what he was getting. The previous summer, he had visited England and seen the excitement the Beatles generated. Later that year, he met with the group's manager, Brian Epstein, and with a handshake deal, Sullivan agreed to pay the Beatles $10,000, which was a steal, to appear on his show three times. After the show... The night was young, as were these four guys. They visited the Playboy Club and the Peppermint Lounge, where Ringo danced, and the rest of the group yelled with approval. On February 10, 1964, back at the Plaza Hotel, the Beatles received gold records for the album Meet the Beatles and the single I Want to Hold Your Hand. In addition, several press conferences were held, including one from celebrity psychologist Dr. Joyce Brothers. Back in Mississippi... District Attorney William Waller, disappointed with the declaration of a mistrial, set out for an immediate second trial. Knowing this one wouldn't get as much national attention as the first, he worried that the result might be the same. As for the Beatles, on Tuesday, February 11th, they performed their first U.S. concert at Washington Coliseum in Washington, D.C. Because of a severe snowstorm cancelling all flights out of New York, the group took a train. In eight inches of snow, Over 2,000 fans greeted them at the Washington, D.C. Union Station. Over 8,000 people watched them take the stage at 8.31 p.m. and open with "Rollover Beethoven. They played a 12-song set for approximately 40 minutes. After their performance, they attended a reception at the British Embassy, but the group walked out when one of the guests cut off a lock of Ringo's hair. The following day, February 12th, the Beatles returned to New York City by train for two concerts at Carnegie Hall. Because it was a public holiday commemorating Abraham Lincoln's birthday, well over 10,000 people greeted them at Penn Station. They played two shows that evening, the second one starting at 11.15 p.m. Lennon later complained that the acoustics were terrible and the setup had lots of the fans on the stage with them so close they were pawed and screamed at multiple times. Next, they traveled south to Florida where they enjoyed a few days of fun in the sun. Then, on Sunday, February 16th, the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show again, this time live from Miami. An estimated 70 million people tuned in to watch this performance. Although only 2,600 fans were lucky enough to be in the audience, CBS had given out over 3,500 passes. The police had to intervene and calm angry ticket holders who couldn't get in. For the next few days, they visited the beach, the training camp of heavyweight boxer Muhammad Ali, who was known as Cassius Clay at the time, and attended a drive-in movie. The Beatles Love Florida. On Sunday, February 23rd, after the Beatles had returned to England the day before, The Ed Sullivan Show aired the band's third performance, which had been previously recorded in the studio. In April of 1964, just two months after the first mistrial in the Mississippi courtroom, Beckwith was retried for the murder of Medgar Evers. That same month, all five best-selling U.S. singles were Beatles songs. This trial had less publicity and, again, a no decision from the jury, so it was also declared a mistrial. District Attorney William Waller admitted unless new evidence could be produced, this case would not be brought again. Beckwith was released on bail and many celebrated, including Ross Barnett, Mississippi's governor, when Medgar Evers was murdered. During Beckwith's trial... Governor Barnett had walked into the courtroom and in front of the jurors shook Beckwith's hand. In August of 1964, the Beatles returned to America and performed 32 shows in 25 cities, including two in Canada, in just over 31 days. That same year, they scored 17 top 40 hits, including six at number one. They toured the world for the next two years nonstop. Their last commercial concert was at San Francisco's Candlestick Park on August 29, 1966. At that time, they had over 1,400 concert appearances worldwide. Back in Mississippi, Byron Day LeBeckwith kept promoting his racist ways. In 1967, he ran as a Democrat for lieutenant governor, telling the voters he was a straight shooter. As Mississippi reporter Jerry Mitchell put it, delivering the line with all the subtlety of a sledgehammer. Beckwith lost the race. The Beatles continued to make music in the studio, producing at least one album a year. But after the untimely death of their manager Brian Epstein in 1967, things started to change. Business choices, artistic disagreements, drug use, and John Lennon's relationship with Yoko Ono were tearing the band apart. From 1968 to 1969, the band would sporadically get together to record. Still, it was contentious, and with each member having individual projects, including social justice causes, creating their own music, collaborating with other artists, and even acting, the writing was on the wall. The last time that all four members of the Beatles were in the same studio was in August of 1969. After months of rumors, in April of 1970, Paul McCartney issued a press release indicating the Beatles were no more. After the breakup, each member enjoyed a successful music career. For the next decade, outsiders offered millions of dollars to get the band back together, but it never happened. On December 8, 1980, John Lennon was shot outside his residence in New York City. Lennon was rushed to the hospital in a police car, but was pronounced dead on arrival He was just 40 years old. In 1994, the surviving members reunited for a project called Anthology, a documentary of the life and times of the Beatles, gathered from hundreds of hours of behind-the-scenes and unpublished recordings. It included retrospective interviews with the members and families, along with a few of John Lennon's unfinished demos. This became an eight-episode television miniseries on ABC. By 1996, in addition to the documentary, the project had expanded into a three-volume set of double albums and a book describing the history of the band. The three double albums, titled Anthology 1, 2, and 3, were to each have one new Beatles song. Free as a Bird was the first new Beatles song in 25 years as Paul, George, and Ringo played their instruments and sang along with John Lennon's demo that he had recorded in 1977. Part 2 of the anthology had another original Beatles song titled Real Love using the same technique. Later, they attempted a full recording of Lennon's demo song now and then using his vocals. They intended for it to be part of Anthology 3, but due to the original tape's poor quality, ambient noise, and technical issues, the song was abandoned and there was no new Beatles song on the album. All this time, Medgar Evers' widow, Mrs. Murley Evers had never stopped fighting for justice. For decades, she tried getting authorities to reopen the case. In 1989, Jerry Mitchell, an award-winning investigative reporter who was mentioned earlier, discovered that in the first trial, there were witnesses who were never interviewed and that a secret defunct state agency named the State Sovereignty Commission had not only paid Beckwith's legal team, but had screened potential jurors for the defense. In 1990, Beckwith was indicted for a third time for the murder of Medgar Evers. After years of appeals, in 1994 the case went to trial. Technology, unavailable in 1964, was used to enhance incriminating photos, and witnesses testified under oath that Beckwith had confessed to the murder at KKK rallies. Given these revelations, the jury, made up of eight African Americans and several women, unanimously found Byron Day LeBeckwith guilty. The verdict was read on February 5, 1994, less than 48 hours before the 30th anniversary of the mistrial. In the same courtroom where the first miscarriage of justice happened, Beckwith was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In 1996, the movie Ghost of Mississippi was released. In the biographical courtroom drama about the 1994 trial, Whoopi Goldberg portrayed Mrs. Murley Evers, James Woods, who portrayed Beckwith, was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. In 2001, Byron Le Beckwith died behind bars. George Harrison was diagnosed with throat cancer in 1997 and had radiation therapy, which at the time was thought to be successful. In 1999, he and his wife were violently assaulted at their home in England. The intruder attacked Harrison with a kitchen knife, puncturing a lung and causing head injuries. Hospitalized with more than 40 stab wounds, Harrison had part of his lung removed. In May of 2001, he was diagnosed with lung cancer that had spread throughout his body. On November 29, 2001, George Harrison passed away peacefully at a property owned by Paul McCartney in Los Angeles, California. The home where Medgar Evers was assassinated is now a museum dedicated to the slain civil rights leader. In 2017, it was designated a National Historic Landmark and in 2019, a national monument. It is located as one of the stops on the Mississippi Civil Rights Freedom Trail. In late 2023, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, with the help of artificial intelligence, were finally able to refurbish and complete the song, Now and Then. Along with John Lennon's vocals and George Harrison from 1996, it was released as the final Beatles song. To date, with estimated sales of over 600 million units, The Beatles are the best-selling music act of all time. On February 7, 1964, less than an hour after the miscarriage of justice in a Mississippi courtroom, all eyes focused on four lovable lads from Liverpool, England, who conquered America in a second British invasion. Whether it was America saying yes to the Beatles' request for admiration in their first release, Love Me Do?, or just knowing that everything will be all right, including writing a wrong decades later in a courtroom, the right thing will happen now and then. And there you have it, all the news that would have been. Thank you for joining us this week on Top Fold. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Top Fold Podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast. All my sources and research can be found at topfold.buzzsprout.com. There, along with other things that bring history to life. I'd like to thank David Wagler for the music. And if you like the show, please rate us and give us a review. Or simply tell a friend. That would be great. So until next time, there you have it. All the news that would have been.